0: Teenagers are very idealistic, and so they will very easily grasp the message that you can be the next Lionel Messi or you can be the next Ed Sheeran. And of course, there's only one person who will ever be that. You know, I, I think it's um, you know the antidote to self-esteem is is having a realistic understanding of yourself, uh, having young people not judge themselves by by grades, but.
1: Hello and welcome to another in our Human Givens Ask the Expert podcast series. I'm Julia Wellstead and today I'm joined by Richard Brook to discuss how to help teenagers flourish. Now Richard is a lecturer in social work at the University of East Anglia uh, and there he teaches a postgraduate module for qualified social workers on working with adolescents. He has over 20 years of experience of working with children and families young offenders, adolescents with emotional and behavioral difficulties, and parents. Uh, Richard is also a practicing human givens therapist and he tutors the one day course, working with troubled and troublesome teenagers for human givens college. Hello Richard.
0: Hi Julia, good afternoon.
1: Hello, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I just thought we've got actually quite a lot of questions today. Uh, uh, Let me just see, at least a dozen. Um, but I just thought we'd start. Perhaps you could uh, tell me a bit about how you came across the Human Givens approach and and how it kind of incorpor- you you're incorporated into your work.
0: Yeah, sure. It, it, I mean, it must have been more than fifteen years ago when I was working in uh, in social services uh, and was part of a, a multidisciplinary uh, therapeutic group uh, working with children and families. Uh, it was subject to safeguarding uh, proceedings, and various professionals from different agencies uh, decided that we wanted to offer uh, some therapeutic services to families rather than just assessment and intervention. And it was one of the colleagues uh, in that group who uh, uh, recommended that I went on a, a course run by Joe Griffin, uh, which was then I think called How to Do Effective Counselling. Ah, and brilliant! Yes, I think it kind of life-changing. It was. Uh, you know one of these courses that seemed to just kind of clarify a lot of thoughts that have been swimming around in the back of my mind for many years about uh, many of things that are wrong with the current state of affairs in in counseling and therapy and just brought some really clear usable ideas to light uh, which as he promised were were able to influence my practice the very next day and so I went on and did the uh, the entire course and i found in so many different areas where I've worked since in youth offending services, in fostering teams, uh, in sort of community social work teams. There's always been a, a place for, for human givens thinking and human givens practices, even when not practicing as a uh, as a straightforward therapist. Uh, so, yeah, there are ideas that apply, I think, to wherever people are working with people these ideas will, will help you to be more effective and that's yes sort of, it's like, a very
1: it's a very sort of universal overarching idea and framework from which to work isn't it
0: absolutely yes yeah yeah
1: so um today obviously we're talking about um the teenage years specifically and the first question here is the transition period from childhood to adulthood comes with a whole slew of physical and emotional developmental changes doesn't it so and of course we've all been through that ourselves and know how excruciating that can be and how it has lows obviously and but also highs and sometimes you can swing from one feeling to the other very quickly and uh, so the question here is how how can we support adolescents through this process
0: oh boy start with the big questions yeah let's just uh... Yeah, let's do that.
1: Just answer the whole thing.
0: <laughs> do you know, I think part of the the answer to that question you've kind of uh, you've kind of hinted at by saying we've all been through it, and and I think firstly just remembering uh, what adolescence is like, uh, remembering that it is a transitional process, and actually understanding something about the nature of adolescence. It is such an all encompassing transition uh, that change from child to adult goes on in those principally teenage years is such a vast uh, array of changes i think the more we understand about what it is what's precisely happening in you know brain body uh in mind uh, the more we're able to help uh, our teenagers and to be honest these days there's no excuse for for really not being clued that there's so much good popular psychology out there I mean, I've got a book on my desk at the moment by Sarah-Jane Blakemore, Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. Uh, eminent neuroscientist in the most plain and accessible language. And there are you know, a whole range of books. Uh, yes, I,
1: I remember one. In fact, I've got it here on the shelf somewhere. Brainstorm, I think it's called. Um, yeah. Dan Siegel. That's,
0: yeah.
1: That I really enjoyed for this. How the teenage brain seems to be quite, well, different or transitional of course
0: yeah my favorite title i think is uh by tony wolf get out of my life but first take me and alex into town (laughs) which is uh uh, i guess probably comes from something that was said to the author by one of his own teenage children but it's a book that just explains in the most plain and, and readable of terms what's happening in in the teenage mind and body Uh, that might lie behind some of the the behaviours that we find difficult or frustrating. So the first thing, I think, is just to understand some of that process so we can empathise and we avoid making those ridiculous statements like, act your age and, you know, it's about time you grew up.
1: up, Uh, If
0: we understand exactly what we mean by that, I think we'll be more effective. And I think allied to that, there's a need to help young people themselves to understand the process. Uh, I've worked with many teenagers who they've bewildered themselves by the things that they say and do and think and just helping teenagers to understand uh, what's going on in their own mind and body the nature of this transition can be really kind of refreshing and uh, empowering for them yeah
1: uh, yeah I'm I'm also thinking um, it's it's quite good to let them know that they do have that the highs and lows are are okay yeah. and are temporary um the the lows especially obviously high high you know when you're feeling good, that's fine, but when yeah. you're feeling low that it is temporary because um, obviously the more serious side to this and we we did a, a podcast on this last week with uh, a mother whose teenage son went on to commit suicide and um obviously for him the 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 low phases the difficulties were just too much for him so it yeah it's uh it's a natural process but sometimes it can just get too much
0: yeah of course and i think we have to understand that for teenagers some of the fairly common kind of difficulties they will encounter they'll be encountering them for the first time in their life and just to be able to give them some confidence that you know these things will pass and that this is all part of a transition is really essential so yeah help help young people to understand themselves uh, yeah, psychoeducation yeah. i think is the uh, the kind of buzzword that, that goes with that yes,
1: um, yes. I, I, mean,
0: I mean one other thing i'd add to that i'm, I'm talking a little bit about some of the the authors that have inspired my practice uh, i've run lots of parenting courses over the years uh, and i think the authors who've inspired me most in that work are Adele faber and elaine uh, We've published a book called uh, how to talk so teens will listen, and listen so teens will talk. Uh, and their advice is to speak to the adult. Uh, you know, in any interaction with a teenager, there will be a child talking to you in very selfish, self-absorbed, childish ways, and lurking behind it, there will be the voice of an adult, uh, via a kind of glimmer of maturity and competence. And Fabra and Maslisch very much want to encourage Those of us working with teenagers to speak to the adult, to uh, look to the more developed uh, aspect of that personality and to to treat that person with respect and to to expect a more kind of adult response. And often when we speak to the adult, it's the adult that speaks back to us uh, and we Mm -hmm. see a more kind of responsible, reasonable person in there that's beginning to emerge.
1: Yeah. Oh, I really like that idea. And of course, that's pertinent throughout a child's life, really, as uh, you know, speak to them as a, a sentient human being rather than uh, anything else. Yes, I like Absolutely. that. So uh, we're rapidly covering the, the, the subsequent questions here, but I'll <laughs> run through them anyway, as people have asked them. Um, is there anything we can do to promote healthy teenage development? So, I suppose, are there any specifics you would suggest?
0: Yes, and actually, that's an interesting question because the we in that question, I think, I I don't know whether that question comes from a a parent or from a a professional uh, working with teenagers. And I guess the answer might be subtly different depending on uh, which angle you're coming from. I, I feel that if we're professionals working with teenagers, Well, it's a big question. There's so many different answers to it. But I I was just thinking of uh, a time when I was putting together some some training for foster carers. And I wanted to get some authentic material that had the voice of a teenager in it about how how adults respond to them. And the place I went to on the Internet was an organisation called the Pearson Awards. Uh, This is an organisation that allows young people in schools to nominate their teachers. Every year for special awards.
1: Ah, how And the part of that
0: website I was really interested in was the young people who've been in in some kind of special education, young people who've been excluded from school, who've had difficulties. And I wanted to know what those young people said at a time in their life when they wanted to congratulate a teacher. And I found a real consistent pattern there: young people saying, "You know, Mr. Johnson was the teacher who believed in me when other people had given up." Uh, you know, Mrs. Jones was the teacher who, who kind of didn't, kind of overreact when I messed up. Who gave me a second chance, and it's that aspect of an adult who can sort of see beyond the immediate problem to see the potential and kind of believe in a young person and convey to them that that you believe in them. I think that's a a really key strength for adults, for uh, professionals working with with teenagers. Yeah. Uh,
1: List, listening to them and respecting what they're saying, hearing what they're saying.
0: Yeah, and even when they're feeling quite despondent, being the one who'll say, "No, come on! I, I honestly believe you can overcome this, and uh, you know, you know, we can, we can pick things up even when you, you've messed up." Uh, as parents, I, I think, you know, just reflecting on the, the long experience I've had of working with parents in various different contexts, to finding of their teenagers difficult. You know, I think the most common piece of advice I've found myself giving to parents over the years is don't forget that you need to change as your children grow up. Often parents will tell me you know it all went wrong when they they got into their teenage years and I asked them what did you change about your parenting as your as your children grew and they didn't change anything they just continued uh, using the, the techniques that had worked perfectly well when their children were seven, eight, nine years old. Um, and so just look at how you need to adapt your own style. And, you know, I think for all of us, I mean, this is a negative answer to your question. This is something that, that I think we absolutely shouldn't do. We shouldn't label young people uh, and we shouldn't pathologize the difficulties they get into. I've worked with a great number of young people who've been really difficult to communicate with because they were very wedded to their diagnosis, very wedded to the label of dysfunction that someone else had attached to them. So once a young people, once a young person is labelled as having anger issues, or having an anxiety disorder, or a personality disorder, that can be yes, really embedded into their sense of identity. Because it's
1: almost like they've been given something. Here's yeah. here's this rock to carry.
0: Yeah, at a time in their life when the identity is really very ripe for for forming and uh, and solidifying and so actually offering a young person the opportunity to get rid of that personality disorder or to move beyond that anger problem isn't often particularly appealing because it has become part of their identity so i'd say for all of us parents and professionals be very careful with labels uh, because labels they can be convenient ways of, of kind of categorizing difficulties and problems they can be very useful for for the adults, but for teenagers, I think they can be very harmful.
1: Yes, even such. I remember I came to your course a number of years ago, Richard, and I, I remember you saying that, and uh, I was I thought at the time, even even with labels that aren't perceived to be bad labels, like you know she's the musical one and she's the tomboy, it, it still pigeonholes kids at a an age where they need they need that wide open vista of possibility they don't need to be channeled like that
0: absolutely right there's uh, yeah anything that closes down possibilities in young people's minds yeah as you say even if it's you know meant with the you know the very best of intentions uh, can be seen as harmful yeah yeah
1: yeah so moving on uh why do young people have difficulties
0: oh well i thought you'd ask me the big question already so <laughs> Coming with an even bigger one.
1: I was thinking, that's a nice short one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, short but large. Um, well, let, let me reflect a bit on on the, the workshops that I do with uh, with practitioners work, who work with teenagers. And I, I've been doing workshops in various settings for, for quite a number of years now. I, I can't quite figure out the, the number of people that I've asked this question to. But it, it will amount to several hundred, if not, you know, thousands. Yeah. And I ask people just to reflect on their own experience of being a teenager, then to think about the teenagers that they currently work with. Uh, and say, are we making it easier or harder to be a teenager these days? And yeah, there's always a few dissenting voices who'll say, Teenagers have got so much stuff, uh, you know, we provide so much more for teenagers. That, you know, the world is more teenage friendly. We've got youth services, youth offending teams, youth counselling. Uh, but actually, the vast majority of voices in response to that question will, you know, very spontaneously say, you know, we've made it harder. We've created an environment in which it is very difficult to negotiate this transition. Um, for all in, what, people,
1: in, in what sense would you, could you encapsulate that?
0: Well, people probably turn first of all to the education system. That we've created a system where so much seems to ride now for young people on the successful outcome in their education, which to so many young people just seems to be so kind of meaningless. Uh, Sometimes, with the best of intentions, we give people wonderful motivational messages about you can be anything, you can do anything you want with your life. Uh, I had a young person. just a few weeks ago saying to me Richard they tell us this and it's rubbish we can't be anything we can't be anything we want to be you know we apply for jobs and we don't get them you know we we knock on doors and they remain closed uh, and they've sold us this lie and young people get very despondent they get into a state of mind where one failure seems to be a, a lifelong setback and I think we as a society have created a world where the pressure on young people is enormous and their yes. capacity to deal with it is is diminished.
1: And it, it's as if uh, we've given them the end goal of you can do anything without the stepping stones to it or with it's too big. It's too um, uh, non-specific, I suppose, as well. And there's yeah. that. that's where perfectionism comes in as well, doesn't it? It's sort of you must get the A star star or whatever.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we've uh, developed a system where we value one particular aspect of success. Uh, and young people who aren't capable of that degree of success feel they're kind of left behind, feel they don't have a value. So yeah, we uh, we seem to be living in a world that is increasingly stressful, increasingly difficult to meet our emotional needs. Uh, and teenagers are growing up into a world that uh, that doesn't seem to have the same Uh, kind of options open to them uh, that it did maybe even 20 years ago yeah so yeah I I tend to agree with people that 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 we made it a, a tough and fairly toxic environment collectively for for navigating adolescence
1: yes so it's almost as if we said you can do anything but being brilliant academically is the best thing to do rather than speaking to all teenagers and saying you could all do anything it's more it's it's more knowing what the individuals are like and helping them to
0: Mm. and i think we need to create an environment where it's okay to fail where we we don't put these unbearable pressures on uh, on our teenagers yeah
1: yeah and how can we educate teenagers about what they're going through and
0: teenagers are very idealistic and so they will very easily grasp the message that you can be the next Lionel Messi or you can be the next Ed Sheeran. And of course, there's only one person who will ever be that. You know, I, I think it's some, um, you know, the antidote to self-esteem is is having a realistic understanding of yourself. Uh, having young people not judge themselves by, by grades, but by, you know, having more kind of descriptive feedback of what they do. You know, where I work at the moment in university, there's a a really concerning phenomenon about the feedback uh, that that staff give to to young people on on degree courses. Typically, young people will they will access whatever system they need to access in order to know what grade they received for any work they've done. But if they have to make any effort to uh, to come into the office and pick up their written feedback, uh, there are envelopes just left lying around in pigeonholes. Uh, <laughs> they don't they don't want their feedback they don't want that kind of descriptive account of what they did and how they did it and how they achieved that grade. They just focused on the grade. And, and that's I mean, that
1: must be something that we've instigated then.
0: I think we've instilled that in, in yes. young people, that the grade is everything. The effort is almost immaterial. And yeah, we scratch our heads in universities saying, how can we make our students actually be more interested in, uh, in reading our feedback and knowing what we, what we think about how they got to the, the grade that we've given them.
1: And you, have you come up with any answers for that?
0: Well, only to, to always make that feedback, you know, very descriptive to uh, almost to enter into some kind of dialogue with the, you know, the writer of an essay or the, you know, producer of a piece of work, you know, allows them to, to see that we've taken an interest in it rather than just to evaluate it
1: yeah 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 teenagers often see themselves as adults and often as kids as we've said before but when they're they if they want to see themselves as adults and be treated that way how should we respond to that and i think this is sort of what you were saying about parents changing as their child grows yeah,
0: yeah. and you know speaking to the adult uh Actually, another one of my favourite authors is a guy called Thomas Phelan. Uh, and apologies, this is you know a bit of a classic text. Thomas Phelan uh, is probably more well known for his book One Two Three Magic, that's a guide to, to sort of managing difficult behaviour in in small children. But he, he's written a book uh, about for parents particularly about about bringing up teenagers. And in there, he has you know an, an absolutely classic piece of advice. Which in all the parenting courses that I've run is probably been the most well-received piece of advice that I that I've passed on to people. Uh, he talks about there being four different stages of authority that you that you occupy with a in any kind of interaction with with a teenager. Uh, observer is the first. If you imagine a ladder with four rungs, yeah, uh, the yeah. bottom rung is observer, and at that stage you just Watch with curiosity and interest, but you don't intervene. You're just interested in what your young people are saying, thinking, doing. Uh, the next stage is advisor. Uh, that's the stage where you very gently intervene, and it might be, you know, you might find it, you know, more helpful if you, you know, if you're in before midnight tonight. You know, you might like to take a coat out with you if it's gonna rain. But there's no insistence. Uh, yeah. The third <laughs> stage of the ladder is. Uh, is negotiator that's when there's a problem that needs to be solved and the parent insists that it must be but they don't insist how yeah your your room needs to be tidy by the weekend how's that going to be achieved
1: yes Yes.
0: and the the final stage of the the ladder the the top rung is director where you say look this is going to happen i'm taking the authority you know my way or the highway (laughs) you know i'm in charge here and the very simple and profound piece of advice that Thomas Feeling gives is that the older your children get, the lower down that ladder you have to spend most of your time. And actually, that's quite counterintuitive.
1: Yes, isn't
0: it? When teenagers are, are, are causing problems, we tend to go in high, we go in at director, uh, we go in with all guns blazing, telling them how things are going to be. And actually, that's not speaking to the adult. Uh, you know, speaking to the adult is is the approach that says, okay, I'm interested in how you're going about this. Let's see how this works. You might want a bit of advice. Actually, you want more than advice. You need me to, to guide you quite strongly here. And ultimately you might need some direction. Uh, but what we do when we, we take that approach is we, we kind of coach young people in adult ways of solving problems. Uh, we let them see our working out. Yes. Like, you know, building to the, uh, you know, to the big advice, Slowly, rather than just kind of springing it on them.
1: Uh, yes, and allowing them volition and the, the 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 chance and the space to to come to the right conclusions themselves. Yeah,
0: and even to come themselves. to a conclusion that we wouldn't have thought of. You know, sometimes uh, yes. teenagers really <laughs> surprise us but, I mean, a better idea. Uh, than like we...
1: I'll set fire to my bedroom rather than. That's clean right. it. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, that, no, that could happen. We wouldn't necessarily approve. <laughs>
1: Yes, but that's so interesting, isn't it? That uh, because I was sitting here, I've actually jotted down observer, advisor, negotiator, director, and I was sort of feeling like it went the other way to what you then you then said that you actually back off as they get older, yeah, and become just an observer. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. and so we're just coaching young people to to think and solve problems in a in a more adult way, uh, yeah. rather than taking the responsibility away from them.
1: Yes. That's that's very interesting. Yes. Now, the harsher end of this is anxiety, depression, OCD, self-harm, addiction, all of these sort of mental health difficulties, which can and do impact teenagers. So how can we spot the signs of a troubled teenager? And and how should we approach a teenager who we feel is troubled?
0: Yeah, this is a, a really interesting question. And I mean, the answer is, it's very difficult, I think, to spot the, uh, the signs of some kind of uh, psychiatric disorder. The standard answer, I guess, to a question like that is to look out for changes in mood and behavior. And of course, in that adolescent phase, changes in mood and behavior are very frequent for perfectly good and innocent reasons. So I don't think we can get away with just saying look for unusual, unexpected changes in behavior. Uh, and I really, you know. Th- you can't give a flippant answer to to this question because this is the serious stuff. You mentioned earlier, uh, you know, young people who uh, who may have ended their lives in the, the process of, of being depressed. So that you know, there, there is no easy and flippant answer to this. And I'm very you know aware that any answer that I give to this might be seen as almost kind of blaming someone who didn't spot the signs. And that's the very last thing that I want to do.
1: Yes, but the, the very fact is that, it's as you've just said, it's, it can be incredibly difficult to spot because things are so variable anyway.
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, be attentive. Give, give young people space to talk. Adults who are involved with teenagers seem to take a default position of, uh, you need my advice. And actually, if we take the default position of, you need a bit of space to, to talk things over, this might help. Faber and Masleech again. You get back to my favourite authors. Uh, recommend that we acknowledge feelings. Sometimes young people will behave in a way that makes us want to deal with the behaviour. You know, they've been rude, they've been confrontational, perhaps they've been upset, they're they're in distress. Rather than dealing with the behaviour initially, Faber and Masleish say acknowledge the feelings. Just let young people know that you've noticed. That they've got some strong emotions going on they, I mean this helps them just to develop a language for their emotions young people have the the richness of emotional experience that that anyone you know adult or child has but they often don't have the the language to express it so just helping young people to develop that language for their emotions to be able to talk about it and therefore to be able to understand themselves a little better can uh, can really help.
1: Yes, I absolutely I, I have three sons of my own. I I think um it can be very difficult for them to talk sometimes and there's the classic thing of go for a walk or go for a drive where things can come out that maybe don't come out within the household.
0: Absolutely. And you know so many professionals working with teenagers also find that those informal ways of of communicating are often way better than the formal yeah you know, face to face counseling scenario, so uh, you know where it's safe, I've always favored you know taking young people out of the building and walking around a local park or you know just doing some activity that comes a you know a good context for a conversation yeah uh, rather yeah. than the yeah the the counseling setting, which is really quite alien uh, yes, they don't really want to, to it, be
1: face to face with and eye to eye with. With you, perhaps, but they'll they'll chat whilst walking along. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And of course, as a parent, it's sometimes hard to stay patient and not get frustrated, especially if that language, that communication, isn't forthcoming. Um, so, how can parents have that patience that, and give that time? And I think, actually, I would say, time is of the essence here to help their children get back on track.
0: Yeah. Now, I. No offense to the person who uh, who submitted that question, but the the that terminology "getting children back on track" I think can sometimes be be problematic. Parents will have an idea about what being back on track actually looks like, which might not be the way their teenager sees it. Uh,
1: yes, very very interesting. Yes, and yes. I, I think
0: you know, as someone who's worked with teenagers and and parents at a couple. Uh, I think you have to accept that the track they end up on might be very different from the track you, yes. you imagine for them.
1: Uh, <laughs> As I said earlier about the, uh, the, the musician and the tomboy, yes, who yeah. probably would rather be doing the opposite. Yeah,
0: Yeah, but, you know, taking that question in its, you know, its best intent, you know, we do want young people to be in, a, in an emotionally healthy state and uh, capable and competent and managing their lives. And I guess if that's what we mean by back on track, uh, then, you know, let's take that. You know, sometimes the adolescent years, I mean, it's, it's been described as storm and stress. I can't quite remember the author who uh, who coined that phrase, uh, but it's a very well-used one. And adolescent years can be storm and stress. They don't have to be, but often they are. And having worked in, uh, in social services, in a safeguarding team, uh, in fostering teams, I've, I've been involved with families that have really encountered the most horrendous of storms in the teenage years. The, the conflicts, the, the sort of rebellious behaviour, uh, parents just being unable to cope. And you know, taking the idea of a storm, I've sometimes used the the metaphor of uh, the house you might live in if you lived in a uh, in a hurricane. So uh, a place where where physical storms were. Were common you'd live in a house that, that had strong points and weak points it would be designed to have windows dividing walls maybe even a roof that could easily be blown away uh, and when that happened it would look like absolute devastation but your house would also have strong points it would have a superstructure that's built to allow the wind to blow through it and to remain firm so when the storm passes the thing can be rebuilt and i've you know, often the structure
1: just, is still uh, there. Yeah. If
0: you can just hold on to the strong points in this relationship, if you can keep your communication open, uh, if you can resist uh, absolutely giving up on this young person, uh, if you can maintain something of your relationship through this storm, it will pass, and what's left can be rebuilt. Uh, your adult relationship with this young person needn't be harmed. Uh, because of the, the stresses and the storms that they go through as adolescents. And that can be an encouraging message. Uh, you know, not to to minimise the uh, the difficulties that some families find themselves going through, but to know that it can pass.
1: And also to communicate to your child that you're, you're there for them, whatever.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that can be so difficult for, for parents when, you know... What's been said and done, they they can take so personally. Uh, They can, uh, you know, this desire that young people, you know, go through as teenagers to be independent, to break away from parental authority and control. Lots of things can be said that that are really quite personal, Uh, and so just helping parents to, you know, to let some of that go, to see it for what it is because uh, of course
1: pa- pa- parents, are, sorry to parents are under a lot of stress themselves probably work money keeping everything together so sometimes having the time and space to just give to your child can be can seem quite difficult to find
0: of course yeah bringing up the teenager is for most people not the only thing that they've got going on in their life you're absolutely right uh, but yeah, I was going to just, just recount a, a story of a, a foster carer, actually, who came in to see me in the office one morning uh, and said to me, Richard, I'm glad when you did some training with us recently that you told us uh, that, you know, to not take things personally, that, you know, everything teenagers do, they do for a reason, but it's probably not personal. Uh, and I said, why, well, what's happened? And she said, we had an argument this morning about going to school. The teenager did go to school but she said when i went up into the bedroom uh, i just saw i hate you written in blood on the uh, on the bedroom wall
1: oh my goodness
0: <laughs> and she said i remembered what you said about not taking it personally but i thought i ought to come down and just uh, just talk this over with you and make sure i'm on the right lines um that kind of thing is a challenge yeah uh, to, to not take personally but yes you know, yes absolutely being, him, being yeah.
1: hated yes
0: yes yeah. so. a young person's bags were not packed when they got in from school uh, and that storm was weathered uh, all credit to that that person for having the the metal to, to the get nerve
1: them. yes to, yeah. uh, to hold it yes hold your nerve yes yes so we've, we've spoken about this a lot, Richard, but what, what are those key communication skills we need to communicate with teenagers and how does that differ from working with children?
0: Yeah, actually, I might not be the best person to answer that second part of the question. I mean, all my career, almost kind of avoided working with very small children. I, I, I found that I prefer working with teenagers. And, you know, I think communication skills that we use in any kind of you know, interpersonal work, a kind of universal, it, the obvious thing to say is listening and uh, such like. But you know, I think we teenagers, for me the key thing is, is building rapport. I think possibly children and certainly adults uh, will be much more forgiving uh, of someone who didn't work too hard at building rapport. They'll understand the rules of the game and they'll understand that you're there to help but in my experience teenagers will not forgive you very easily if you fail to build rapport and very often they didn't ask to come and see you in the first place you know whatever intervention it is that's going on wasn't their idea it was was some adult who proposed it so they've got no vested interest really in building rapport with you and sometimes the the knack is to just give as long as it takes to open up that channel of communication and to create a trusting relationship with uh, within, it, it's kind of pointless otherwise. So I think that's where we need to really sort of hone our skills. Yeah, yeah,
1: and uh, I think I'm I'm itching to quote my famous my favourite quote by George Bernard Shaw, which is the the biggest problem with communication is the assumption that it's taken place.
0: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Of course,
1: You think you've told them something or they've told you something or, but just check that it's clear.
0: Yeah. You see, when we go on human givens training courses, we're taught about uh, matching and leading. Which in many interactions is a really simple process. It's to do with posture, body language, you're reflecting another person's language. With teenagers, I think that matching and leading can be really quite complex. I mean, I'll give you one example of a young person who I was required to interview about a criminal offence that that he'd been accused of. I had to write a court report. So I had to get some some interaction going with this young person, some explanation about what had happened. He took a very different view. He was sitting there with his arms folded in a children's home, uh, sitting at, at the opposite end of a very large lounge area. He's sitting there with his arms folded and his head down, refusing to speak to me. So what can I do? Well, I sat there with my arms folded and my head down, (laughs) uh, not inviting him to speak to me. We both got quite bored of this after 10 minutes. So I just lifted up my head and I said to him, "Uh, do you know how to make a paper aeroplane? And he looked at me with utter contempt, as if I thought to say, of course I do. So I kind of Offered him the challenge. I walked over, gave him a piece of paper, went back to my chair, uh, and started making a paper aeroplane uh, with a piece of paper of my own. Uh, when I'd finished it, I threw mine at him. He threw his at me. Uh, we both picked them up and threw them back, and we had a few <laughs> little exchanges of paper aeroplanes. After a few exchanges, I uh, unrolled mine and uh, and just wrote on it board question uh, mark and threw it back to him. He unfurled it and wrote "yes." Uh, and back it came, and that was the beginning of our conversation. We never uttered a word uh, in the hour-long interview, but by the end of it, both of our paper aeroplanes were, were well furnished with questions and answers, and we had a conversation. And we'd, cool. uh, we'd agreed to meet in a few days' time and talk in a more conventional way. We uh, did. Now I'm not giving that as a as a recommendation for a rapport-building technique, but, but there, that is be brilliant as needed. Uh, yes. Yeah, but sometimes you just need to think on your feet and and build rapport with that individual at that particular moment.
1: It it actually reminds me of a very different situation, obviously. But we we used to have a table tennis table out in the shed, and uh, that was also a very good place to have a conversation because you're literally batting. Back and forth, and and they they became very quickly became much better than me. So they could they could smash me (laughs) if they didn't want to answer the question. They just go wham.
0: (laughs) You're right. Any game that has an element of exchange is a metaphor for a conversation. So it it becomes a a really nice context. And uh, yes, yeah, the the most common thing actually that, that I've done is is just sit there and draw a a noughts and crosses grid. On a piece of paper and pass it to the young person who just can't resist drawing a cross in the middle box.
1: You can't not do it, (laughs) that's brilliant.
0: Then we've got a game going and we've got some interaction and, and sometimes the conversation builds from there.
1: Lovely, that's lovely. Now how can we set goals for teenagers without them feeling instructed or controlled and I'm just going to join that with the next again question which is what should we do when those goals are
0: missed? Okay, well, that first question, how can we set goals without teenagers feeling instructed or controlled? Simple answer, we can't. If we set goals for teenagers, then we are, by definition, controlling and instructing them. We're telling them what they must want. When we work with teenagers, we just have to get over ourselves and, and allow them to have their own goals.
1: Set their own, go- set their own goals, of course, have volition over that.
0: Absolutely. Now, I mean, that isn't necessarily a straightforward matter. I think, you know, in my career, uh, in working with teenagers, particularly, I have to say, in the eight years I spent in a youth offending team. If I had kept account of what young people said when I asked them, what are your goals in life? The two most common answers to that question are drug dealer and porn star. Uh, <laughs> right. Neither of which I could really consent to or... or, or on the official youth justice board, or encourage papers, yes, or, or encourage young people to work towards. So there's a that's the, the opening hand for a negotiation, isn't it? You know, we need to say so. You know, drug dealing. What particularly appeals to you about that? What skills do you have? You know, how do you see yourself? You know, making money, being an entrepreneur. Uh, so goals have to be negotiated, but they just can't be imposed. We have to start from where. Uh, where that person is at and often when you hear goals like that you know your heart sinks because here this is a young person who has actually got so little ambition uh, so little sense of their their own capability uh, and you just want young people to be able to to see themselves in a more positive light and so so this whole process of goal setting is an integral part of our you know working with young people to just raise their opinion of themselves uh, and to, so to
1: yeah of. so really before you even mention goals it's sort of building um helping them to see their own potential and and their own resources i
0: suppose yeah absolutely and of course everyone's different some teenagers will have very clearly articulated goals and they'll you know they'll be able to recite them uh and they'll be very positive so you know it, it's not universal but but you do often find you know, goals are problematic and and need to be negotiated. Uh, I mean, the second part of your question was, what do we do when when goals are missed? Which, of course, they are. Um, and you know, we've talked already about the kind of idealism that you often see in teenagers. That you know, they want to aim high. And if somebody says they want to be the next Lionel Messi, they you know, they want to you know, as I once very foolishly said in Ireland, want to be the captain of England. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to be some sporting superstar let's not dismiss those goals I mean who knows they may it's more likely that in failing to achieve those goals they'll achieve something worthwhile so I think you have to have this balance between you know not dismissing young people's idealism uh, and yet still being realistic about themselves yeah and when a goal is missed when an exam is failed or a, a a job application is refused or you know there's, there's some kind of setback i think we just need to model that art of staying calm and you know getting up and dusting yourself down and and carrying on uh, just helping people to get that motivation to you know to be resilient
1: yes and it occurs to me actually i i um listen to a lot of radio and um so many people when interviewed you know these are sort of famous people by the stage; otherwise, they wouldn't be being interviewed. Probably, uh, they say, "Well, I set off to do this in life, but that didn't work out. Or along that path, I discovered this other thing." And uh, so, you know, they've had a zigzag start. For very, very few people, is it just a straightforward route to stardom or fame or richness or whatever it is they're after? Um, yeah. there have always been some false starts.
0: Of course. And I think that personal stories of that sort are, are really helpful. Uh, during the time when I, I was working in a, a young people's a, a CAM service, a adolescent mental health service, uh, one of my senior colleagues confided in me one day that he'd been excluded from five schools uh, in his teenage years before going on to, you know, have a perfectly successful career. Uh, totally, <laughs> he never told me. It's because I used to use that story yes. the young people uh, that I worked within the service. See, that, that information probably went a little wider than uh, than he intended. But just being able to to point to you know real tangible examples of
1: yes, the the classic is Mr. Dyson made however many Hoover's that didn't work. Yeah, vacuum. So Mr. Should Dyson, who for <laughs> being another person, yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, Mr. Hoover never and, made the Dyson. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and uh, Mr. Fleming, who who uh, found out antibo- penicillin by complete accident. So, you know, there's lots of examples yeah. of.
0: Um, yeah, and, and these can and, be inspiring if they they just told in the right way at the right time. You're absolutely right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we were sort of alluded to how to help teenagers see their potential. Uh, but how can we also help teenagers who have uh, troubles who have to find a solution? And In my mind, those two things actually also go together in that finding your potential can at least dim your tr- troubles, send them out of focus.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I teach on my workshop is, uh, is the art of descriptive praise which is again such a simple idea but it's a little bit counterintuitive you you'll often hear parents and teachers and, and others who work with with teenagers and with children telling them how great they are in in very vague terms you know that's fantastic you know you've got loads of potential you're uh, you know you're really gifted the art is to convert that into a really clear description so you know if i'm working with a young person in a in a youth offending team they turned up on time I'll give them that feedback and say, Really pleased that you turned up on time today. you know I wonder if you're starting to get a little more organized so I'll give them the label, maybe you're starting to get a little more organized, but I'll give them the reason the description that, that says why i've uh, why I've used that word and young people who find it hard to receive praise actually find it very difficult to dodge that kind of praise because they can't deny that they were there on time if you've asked yes. them some difficult questions and they've give them a thoughtful answer, they can't deny that that's the case if you pointed it out. But if you just say, no, oh, you're really bright and insightful, they can deny that, you know, as long as you like. So so giving them praise that they can't dodge uh, is, is one of the, the techniques that I found really helpful. Yes,
1: very interesting. So specific and concrete and irrefutable.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah Yeah, and and praise that you know that kind of becomes a mirror that young people can see themselves in and they'll say yeah i did do that and even if it was entirely by accident even if this young person you know never intended to be on time they (laughs) they lost track of the time and and were punctual by accident still tell them what they did and still give them credit for it in that descriptive way
1: do you ever find uh, it just sort of makes me wonder do you ever find that uh, there's a sort of street cred element so if you tell them wow you've come on time one one day they actually make a point of being late the next time because it's it's uncool to be on time is there a thing there
0: oh they certainly can be and uh i think with anything like that you've got to be so careful not to overdo the uh the enthusiasm uh in your praise one of the another one of my favorite authors is um is bill o'hanlon the solution focused therapist right uh, he's written an article about working with reluctant clients, particularly with reluctant teenagers. Uh, and he says, I have a motto when working with, uh, with people who didn't want to come and see me, which is never be the most motivated person in the room, uh, which nice. is an enormous challenge, isn't it? Yes, you be less motivated than the, the teenager who didn't want to come. Uh, but I think we sometimes make the mistake of thinking that our enthusiasm will be infectious. It won't. But, It'll just be irritating.
1: Exactly. And going back to the first principles of the human givens approach, you, we need to match before we can pace.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. But I've seen so many people kind of get that wrong uh, and think that the way to, to win a teenager over is to be incredibly positive and animated and enthusiastic. And I see eyes glaze over and and hoods come down and you know, hats get pulled forward. <laughs> Of
1: course, because I mean, that's probably what their parents are doing as well, sort of bouncing around the kitchen, going, being over-enthusiastic about things. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, Richard, do you have a a time that you could give as an example when you've put all this uh, into practice to help a troubled teenager?
0: Yes. um, Yeah, what example to choose?
1: Uh, <laughs> yes i'm sure you have a wealth <laughs> of
0: them you know one thing that that really sticks in my mind is you know i mentioned earlier psychoeducation if we can help young people to understand what's going on in their lives and to you know just to understand their own psychology we we can help them to to generate solutions and i remember a young person uh i'll call him darren for the purposes of this description. was in a very conflicted relationship with his mum there was a lot of violence there was a lot of you know heated arguments there were holes in walls and doors uh, that had been you know made by fists it it wasn't a happy household and i went to see darren one day and he said he said richard i i think i'm going mad you know i I think i'm having a breakdown what's happened he said, Well, I came in from school and my mum just shouted from the kitchen, put your shoes away. So I just picked up this vase off a table, chucked it at the wall, slammed the door, went off down the street in my socks, just left my shoes where they were, got to the corner, and I thought, I'm I'm going mad. Uh, and he was really genuinely upset and concerned about himself. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the fight flight reflex. Uh, and we actually wondered. You know, if his mum had been coming at him out of the kitchen with a carving knife and murdering her eyes, what would have been the most sensible thing that his brain could have intuited that he he did in that situation? And actually, it was pretty much what he did do. You know, the the, the vase thrown against the wall is a brilliant distraction. The door slammed is a barrier. And then getting off down the road without any thoughts of whether your feet hurt or not uh, would be the perfect kind of survival uh, technique without any thought, and of course thought has no part in the fight-flight reflex. It's, it's an intuitive response. Uh, and once we kind of mould that over a little bit and he could see that there actually was some real method in that madness, uh, there was some purpose to that behavior. Okay, there was no murder in his mother's eyes, there was no threat to his survival, uh, and we began to work then on you know, what might have triggered that inappropriate response what was it in his brain that that gave him that that signal to uh to fly into that rage uh, and that opened the door to being able to do some work on traumatic memories and uh, and look at the uh, the patterns that he was he was working with um but I, it just seems to be a good example of how helping someone to understand their own psychology uh, can help to calm them down and just open the, the way to a possible solution
1: yes that that psychoeducation as we call it it is so brilliant isn't it i've had that in my own practice so many times that just learning about that fight flight reflex and the survival system um can really help people understand what's going on but the in fact the biggest thing i heard was there was that he came to you it had shocked him
0: yeah
1: as well Yeah.
0: yeah and and that only occurs when you've got a reasonable Sort of rapport with you'd that. built
1: the rapport, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, and actually, yeah. I mean a, a second angle to that question is, is to think about uh, the many, many times when the help is given second hand by parents, very often with teenagers the the way to help them is to help their parents to have to see things differently, and I remember an occasion I was talking to a parent in a, a very similar situation with a uh, a young lad who. Uh, I never met him actually I only ever worked with a parent the the lad was out when we uh oh that's had interesting meetings. but I heard a description of an absolute rebel who would you know just disregard and disobey everything uh that his mum told him to do so he was being kicked out of school he was getting in fights he was drinking taking drugs hanging around with you know in his mum's eye all the wrong people uh and she was just protesting that he was out of her control. And I just got a, a sense that they'd gotten themselves into a pattern here where there wasn't any real challenge to his behaviour. So I kind of stopped her halfway through her account and I said, do you know, I'm really impressed at listening to you. You're telling this, how obedient your child is to you. And she said, what do you mean? Have you not listened to a word I have said? He doesn't, do a, he doesn't do anything I ask him. I said, no, I, I realize he doesn't do anything you ask, but he seems to do everything you expect. And she kind of went quiet at that and mulled it over. And she said, really, do you think I'm somehow giving him permission? I said, It sounds like you might be. Uh, and so we just started to work on how she can speak to a child in a way that conveys better expectations. Uh, Because it seemed that every time she tells him not to go and get drunk what he hears is I expect you to get drunk. When she tells him to not get thrown out of school he hears I expect you to get thrown out of school and would do exactly that. Uh, And that was the turning point for that mum just realising that a subtle change in the way she, she spoke to her son. Might have an impact on his behavior and it
1: did and of course that's a wonderful example of the reframe which we also use very often in the human givens approach of, of
0: course yeah
1: and 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 once having seen that different way of looking at things the mother that she could never unsee that again
0: that absolutely a light bulb
1: moment for her yeah
0: and I think, yeah, when you get those lightbulb moments, that's kind of a, a, an example of the power of the, the sort of hypnotic suggestion. Because I think if that's delivered with a kind of a sense of shock at the right time and in the right way. It does become quite a powerful intervention in itself. And, uh, and sometimes that's all that's needed.
1: Yes, that's brilliant. So, Richard, what I've been hearing this whole uh, time we've been chatting is that the human givens approach has really helped you in your work. Um, we've touched on it throughout and mentioned is there anything else you want to say about that and that, you know has it helped with different types of people maybe antisocial behavior or anything we haven't covered in all these questions
0: um wow yeah well I mean one thing that I, I guess in the last few years I, I've been coming at this from a, a more kind of academic perspective since I moved to to working in a university and I'm aware that There's a massive body of research behind the idea of strength-based practice, particularly with teenagers. If you can view the teenagers you work with as not at risk, but at promise, and you work with them in that kind of strengths-focused way, whether or not you're working from a strictly human givens perspective, there's there's a great body of research that says that this is the most effective way uh, to help teenagers, not to focus on their... Uh, their deficits and difficulties but to focus on their promise and their potential and the human guidance gives you a a perfect framework for doing that. Uh, Working with teenagers it gives you some actual physical resources the the basic idea about human needs and uh, and the guidance systems that we have to to meet those needs Uh, can quite easily be written down on pieces of card and cut up and moved around and turned into something resembling a mixing desk with faders and goodness knows, whatever. Uh, and so can be made into a, a beautiful interactive resource that right from the beginning of a conversation puts the young person in the driving seat in talking about their own life and how they meet their needs. Uh, so it's a method that, that really, yeah, it lends itself to, uh, to creative approaches which teenagers often need.
1: Lovely. And I, I, what I'm hearing there as well is that you're using metaphors according to what that person is interested in. So you've obviously got to know them enough to, to figure out that they're interested to, with, you know, music mixing boards or football or whatever the thing is.
0: Yeah. And the great thing about metaphors is the, you know, if you get a blank look, you know, you've... Uh, try
1: another one. <laughs> you've
0: good one and you, and you go again and, and try something else and... Uh, yeah there will be something that kind of brings a little light that, in the eyes that, that clicks that people yeah. recognize and, and respond to
1: yes yes oh fabulous richard thank you so much is there anything else you'd like to add just before i wrap up the podcast
0: wow no i don't think so really <laughs> i think we, we've, we've had a pretty we've covered a not chat there, we? yes
1: yeah. yes uh thank you so much for for sharing your knowledge with us and many many years of experience um Now, there is a lot more you can say, but not within this podcast. Um, And I know you do give the uh, Human Givens course. So just for listeners, if you would like to explore this subject further, Richard is hosting his Troubled and Troublesome Teenagers course, which is a one day CPD workshop Uh, It's in London. It's on Thursday, the 14th of November. If you'd like to attend, you can book your place on our website, which is humangivens.com forward slash college, or call our office 01323 811 690. Now, all of that will be on this podcast page. Um, I should say the workshop can also be held as an in-house training. So if you're unable to make it uh, on that particular date, 14th of November, or in fact you feel that your team or business or university would benefit from the training course, please do get in touch with us. And as I said before, links for everything I've mentioned will be added to the podcast page. We really hope you found this podcast interesting and helpful. I certainly have. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to everybody for listening. I should also add, if you want to, you're very welcome to share it with anyone else who you think would benefit from listening to it. So until next time, bye for now.